Good morning. Uh, just in case we haven't met before, as Alex said, my name is Ben Montgomery, and I help with Boys Kid Zone here at Ridgeview. Anyone feeling stuck? It, it comes and goes for me. We're in the middle of our unstuck series, as Pastor Alex mentioned. We've been looking at enemy thoughts or enemy lies that Satan, our real enemy, whose goal is to steal and kill and destroy, tries to use to take us out. And we find ourselves having to choose either to do what we know is right or give in to fear or carelessness. Chances are we're struggling with enemy thoughts. Sometimes we think, it's not what I want, so I give myself permission to do the wrong thing. Or we think, I'm too tired to do what I know God wants me to do. It's too hard, so why keep trying? It's not fair. It's not worth it. Lots of thoughts, which sometimes are partly true, but they can leave us in a ditch, just spinning our wheels. And there's today's special. All right, everybody, it's time to get lonely. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. I'm the only one. As Alex just prayed, we we welcome God here. We we hope that we will all be reminded of his presence. And now he, when he's with us, and he is with us as we follow him, he is enough, always enough. Now, before we go any further, I have a confession to make. I'm an introvert. I recharge by getting time to myself. I like to be alone. There's actually a History Channel show called Alone that I like to watch, where they send 10 people out into the wilderness to see who can last the longest. They have no idea how many other people are out there until they quit or someone comes to tell them that they won. They get to choose 10 items to take with them, like a bow and arrow or a tarp or a feral rod for starting fires. And they all have some kind of training and survival skills, and they film themselves out there. There's no film crew with them. They are literally alone as they try to get food and build shelter and all that. Some of them go home because of accidents or sickness or not enough food, but some of them do a great job with all of that, and they go home because they can't stand the isolation. Too many days of thinking, I'm the only one. Now, here's my confession. I watch that show as an introvert, and I kind of think I could win that. The $500,000 prize could be mine. If one of my items was a Costco and another of my items was an Airstream trailer, I could go all the way. I could handle the isolation. Just thought there should be full disclosure about that as we get into today's topic. Often, being alone is really hard, but sometimes it's really tempting. Either way, we need wisdom. So when do we tend to feel like we're alone? Here's a few scenarios. See if you can relate to this. They had a good time, you couldn't go. They had a good time, you weren't invited. They had a good time, you feel like you were deliberately excluded. They had a good time, you were excluded. Now, if you're like me, there's already an imaginary scenario building up in your head, right? Or maybe you're remembering something real. I run these scenarios way too often. I start out imagining a normal conversation with someone, a friend or family member, maybe someone at work, and then in my mind, the other person says something hurtful to me. Then, still in my mind, I respond with kindness and grace. You know me. (laughs) And then they do something or say something worse, and it keeps going like that if I don't redirect my thoughts until eventually I've experienced in my mind a terrible injustice. So mad at that person because of what they did in my mind, right? And I feel like I'm all by myself. I'm all alone. And maybe it doesn't go that far for you. I hope not. But there are so many situations where we're tempted to feel like we're all alone. 
A big one for me is feeling like a failure, feeling like I don't measure up. Now, if you're a guy, you might be thinking, I don't like that. Or maybe just, "Mm mm-mm, right? It can cut really deep. Years ago, I got a job selling whole house water systems. Have you heard of those? They filter out the chlorine and cost only 3,000 times more than a Brita filter. This should be an easy sell. I was told that if I sold two a week, I'd match the income I'd been getting from my previous job that had dried up. I had a teaching job. It had gone away. I needed a new job. Here I was talking to the water people. And they had a sales binder with a bunch of celebrity endorsements in it, and it was considered very environmentally friendly, so it had some good things going for it. And I didn't have any other offers at the time, so I gave it a try. It was the second sales job I'd ever had. Now, the first one was when I was 14, going door-to-door with a bag of stuff that had been crafted, I was told, by the blind and handicapped. Uh, Was it? I I really don't know. Uh, Anyway, if I'd come to your door, I would have tried to sell you a grill brush for $8. But that's that's a different story. Going back to my grown-up sales job, which I hoped would provide for my wife, Lori, and my toddler son, Josh, I did sell a few water systems, but I did not sell two a week. I don't think I even sold two a month on average. Sad. The funny thing was, or the sad thing was, I was getting really excited about sales as a profession for a while there. My manager had a random book in his office that he loaned me, and it was really good. It was about sales strategy. It really excited me about the whole thing, sales as a service to others. It's a whole new world. Selling grill brushes out of a bag had not shown me the true potential of all this, but now, now I got it. Except I was terrible at it. Terrible. I put the time in, I worked the sales funnel, but unless I was talking to Scrooge McDuck, while he was doing the backstroke across a swimming pool full of cash, I just had a very hard time seeing my product as a good use of the customer's money. And so I felt like a failure. But I also felt like I was the only one. Our sales office was full of guys who were retired or semi-retired, and if they didn't sell two systems a week, it didn't seem to matter, but it mattered to me. Maybe going to work for them was like going to the lodge to hang out or something. I I don't know. But for me, I needed to pay the rent and feed my family. And then at the big annual sales conference, the most successful young sales rep rep was brought up to teach us his technique. He's doing great. And all of us could too if we were willing to learn. It's good to be teachable, right? Well, he came up and ran through his technique and basically explained to the whole company with senior management right there, how he lied when necessary to increase his chances of a sale. Now, to these guys, lying about the product directly was a no-no, but other lies were fair game. And I wasn't going to do that, which I took to mean I wasn't going to sell many water systems. I drove home from that conference feeling like I was the only one. I'm the only one who needs to make sales but can't. I'm the only one who cares about telling people the truth. Was that really what was happening? Was there really no one else feeling like that ever? Probably there was, but it sure felt like I was alone in it. And so the familiar thoughts started to run through my head. If the odds are so stacked against me, why try to make progress? Why handle my responsibilities carefully? I started to lose heart. I decided to look for another job, but it took me a really long time to find one, so I lost heart even more. Now I was really feeling like I was the only one. And again, of course, I wasn't. But we're so sure we are sometimes, aren't we? This is a rough time for me and my family. There were other big things going on there too, but God saw us through it, and he really helped us to persevere. He continues to do that for all of us as we turn to him. 
He provided a new job for me after a year, and it was so great, refreshing, exciting, encouraging in so many ways. And I stayed at that company for a long time. But then, guess what happened? The same thing. It's as if I keep needing to learn this lesson. I started to feel like I was the only one, again, for a whole different set of reasons. The only one who disagreed with the company's priorities. The only one who wouldn't get a promotion or didn't really have a future there. And with that enemy thought came the same temptation to give in to self-pity and loosen my grip on my responsibilities, or to take things into my own hands instead of following God carefully and exactly. It's a battle. We have to keep fighting. I mentioned our enemy earlier. Satan wants to keep us from getting the help we need, and he wants to keep us from helping anyone else, and he'll do anything he can to win. Let's take a look at what 1 Peter chapter 5, 8, and 9 says. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't really know how to fight a lion. Do you like, make yourself look big or try to cause a distraction and run away? I mean, do you sweep the leg? Is that allowed? I do know one thing. I'd rather fight a lion with all of you there with me than on my own. Passage goes on. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Stand firm. Choose faith. We need to be resistance fighters. We need to know that we're not the only ones suffering. We are not the only ones. But there's so many chances to feel that way, right? Every disappointment, any challenge can get me feeling like I'm the only one. We really do have to battle sometimes. How, how do you feel when you have a job that no one else wants to do? We all love cleaning the bathroom, right? Or how do you feel? Do you ever feel left out when friends talk about a movie or a TV show that you haven't seen? Young folks, maybe you're not even allowed to see it. How does that feel? What about bigger challenges? Do you ever feel like you're all on your own when it comes to parenting? When it comes to marriage struggles, financial struggles? What about when you face health issues that no one else seems to be facing? What about private struggles? Have you ever suffered through a miscarriage? Have you ever struggled with not being able to have children? Have you ever wanted to get married and felt like you're the only one who's not? These are really hard things to face, heartbreaking. And FOMO, in general, is a big one, fear of missing out. We compare ourselves in all the wrong ways, right? Are all your friends' lives as perfect as they seem on social media? Not that all our friends are trying to trick us, but why wasn't I at such a cool Airbnb last weekend, right? Why didn't I take my wife to, ho to uh, Hollywood, no thanks, to Hawaii for our anniversary? <laughs> Oops, it slipped out. How come I'm not the one posting, blessed to be salesperson of the year? You know how it goes. When you take the perfectly crafted highlights of someone's social media feed and add it, all those acquaintances, all their feeds, and then you compare your life the FOMO can be overwhelming. Feel like you're the only one not living your best life. All right, now quick bonus track for all the young people listening. No matter how many friends you have or don't have on social media, social media itself is not your friend. It will never be your friend. Think of it as more like flesh-eating bacteria. Watch it carefully and cut it out before it eats you alive. You don't want to have to grow back your heart or your brain. That would take a really long time. 
Okay, enough. There's still more, more versions of this enemy thought, right? I look at what old classmates have done professionally. Where did I go wrong, right? What's wrong? With me, only me. And there's alienation from family, maybe, over the last few years. Am I the only one who feels this way about this particular topic in my family? Is everyone else against me, right? There's being with people that are better than you at something, people who don't want to do the right thing. So many chances to feel like, oh, I might as well just do whatever because I'm on my own. The enemy is relentless, and he's not going to hold back. He's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He wants to consume us. He wants to keep every single person on earth from knowing God's goodness. It's a battle. He wants to take us out of the battle so that we're useless. So what's one of his biggest strategies? Let's think about that. Isolate and destroy. Cut each of us off from everyone else. Then we're out of the battle. There are two main ways I I was thinking of that this happens. Number one, when we feel like we're the only one, but we're not, the enemy will kind of supercharge our feelings of self-pity, self-isolation. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who's convinced they're the only one? You can see, right, that their struggles are real struggles, but, but normal. But in their mind, everything is unique and therefore impossible. And when you talk to someone with this perspective, they're kind of communicating to you that you cannot possibly understand them. They're kind of saying that they shouldn't have to listen to advice, that no one can help them. My situation is unique, so I don't have to obey. I don't have to learn. I don't have to consider other people. My situation is unique, so I can't really be known. How does it feel to relate to someone like that? Okay, now, this is a little harsh, but what if someone is thinking that about you right now? Uh Uh-oh. Self-pity leads us to isolate ourselves, and once we're isolated, it's much easier for us to be put to the sidelines, to be made useless for the kingdom of God. So then there's isolate and destroy number two. When we really are the only one, we are sometimes, right? Then the enemy will try to get us to despair. If we give up and stop doing what God has for us to do, our opportunities to make a difference in life pass by. They don't come back. And so the enemy wins again. I don't like these odds personally. As someone who does love the introvert life, I still don't want to be isolated and then taken out. So do I get a say in all this? Yes, of course. As you and I both know, when I feel alone, I still get to choose my response. Well, we're going to transition now because as you can imagine, God's people have faced this many times also. It's part of life in our broken, sinful world. So let's look now at how God has helped people through the very same enemy thoughts that we face today. We're going to look at a father and son today who handled things in very different ways. It's not Anakin and Luke, no. It's Saul and Jonathan. Saul was the first king of Israel. Jonathan never became king. But before we talk about them, let's back up and get some more context. Let's talk about a guy named Samuel. Okay? Now, Samuel's mother, this is so fascinating. Samuel's mother couldn't have children. It was really hard for her. But then God gave her a son. And because he gave her a son, she said, I dedicate him to God's service. And she brought him to the temple when he was a little kid. And he was raised at the temple. Handed him over to a priest named Eli, right? She used to bring him a new outfit every year. She's at home, away from her son, but thanking God for him and guessing, how tall is he now? What size should I make? She'd bring it to him. She'd give it to Eli. And so Samuel, the boy, grew up under Eli, the priest. Now, 
priest Eli was pretty good, but he had a couple of sons who were terrible. They abused their position as priests. They abused the people. Samuel, the boy, walked with God in spite of all this bad stuff. Now, Eli, the priest, didn't control his son, so eventually God sent a message to him, basically saying, it's over. Listen to this quote. This is God talking to Eli. You will see distress in my dwelling. Not just out there somewhere else. Right in God's house, you'll see it. Although good will be done to Israel, in your family line, there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart. And all your descendants will die in the prime of life. That's like crazy intense curse, right? And it just gives us a sense of how wicked Eli's sons were and how completely he failed in his leadership. But Samuel, the boy, in the middle of all this, walked with God and obeyed him, and God was with Samuel as he grew up. Now, the Israelites, the people of God, when they came into the Promised Land, they had this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you've heard of it, their most sacred relic. Right? It was with Eli and Samuel at the temple, and then an enemy of Israel, the Philistines, we're going to talk about them in a minute, the Philistines were attacking, and the Israelites took the ark out to the battle. Let's take our sacred relic out to help us fight, was the idea, right? And so Eli's sons were there with the ark, and the battle turned out to be disastrous. 30,000 Israelites killed. Eli's sons both killed. The ark was captured. The messenger comes back and tells Eli, who's a super old man at this point, he's sitting in a chair, and says when he heard the news, he fell out of his chair and broke his neck, and he died. And then his daughter-in-law was about to have a baby, and she had a baby, and she named the baby boy Ichabod, which means no glory, because she said, the ark's gone, the glory has been taken from Israel. And then she died in childbirth. So it's all this unbelievable tragedy happening. And they eventually got the ark back, which is an amazing story. You should read this week. Check it out. 1 Samuel chapters 4, 5, and 6. But this ongoing struggle with the Philistines and the trauma of losing their most precious religious item helped set the stage for the Israelites to demand that God give them a king. They never had a king. God was their king. God had led them. He used different people to lead them, but no king. But after all this stuff happens, now Samuel gets old. He was a great leader. He was a great prophet. He was a man of God. But this is still so fascinating. It turns out his sons weren't that good either. Not as bad as, Israelite, as Eli's, but still. And so the Israelites said, we want a king to lead us. Definitely not your sons. We don't want them leading us. You're old. Time's almost up for you, right? Everyone else has a king. We want one. And Samuel said, you don't want to do that. A king will take all kinds of things from you for himself and his friends. And have you forgotten? God is your king. But the people insisted. And God told Samuel, name Saul as the first king of Israel. Now, part of the reason we spend time looking at all this backstory is because it's Really interesting, right? The Bible's full of fascinating, intense history, stories of people, none of them perfect, a lot of them really messed up, who God uses in spite of themselves. And these people we find in the pages of the Bible don't get their mistakes and sins covered up. We get to see them and learn from them. Some of that stuff is quite shocking. And, you know, it's encouraging because these guys were just like us. They messed up, we mess up. They've given in to temptation, we've given in to temptation. 
Another reason I wanted to look at that backstory for Saul is because I think he must have felt lots and lots of pressure. The Israelites basically said, we're the only one. We're the only nation without a king. We want to be like all the other nations. That's a lot of pressure for that first king. And it's lonely at the top, right? If anyone's going to feel like they're the only one, the king will. And that only adds to the pressure. So, all right, what's the story with Saul? Well, first of all, he looked like a king. The Bible says that of all the Israelites, he was the best or the most handsome or the most impressive, depending on what translation you use. And it also tells us that Saul was a head taller than everyone else. See, this, this is more than a head because I'm not that tall, right? So when the people asked for a king, God gave them someone that really looked the part. And Saul started off well. A little while after he was declared king, there was this huge uh, drama, right? He was back in his hometown. He was out in the field with his oxen. He was plowing the field, I guess. And then people started freaking out. They're like crying and wailing. And he comes back with his oxen. He says, what's going on? Why are the people crying? And they say, oh, you know, Jabesh Gilead is under attack. This is a city that was up north and across the river. And, you know, Nahash of the Ammonites is attacking. And he says, look, you guys can come out. You can serve me. But only after I poke every one of your right eyes out and humiliate all Israel. And so they gave him seven days. You know, they asked for seven days to try to find help. And, of course, that's why we're crying. Our, our brothers and sisters are going to be, you know, treated brutally. And the Bible says that when Saul heard this, the Spirit of God came on him in power. And he took his two oxen and he slaughtered them and cut them into pieces. He's not going back to the field, is he? He sent the pieces of meat around to all Israel and basically told everyone, follow me and Samuel to rescue Jabesh Gilead or I'll turn your cows into steaks also. And so everyone came out to help. He sent messengers back to the city that was under siege. We're coming. Nobody's getting their eye poked out. And Saul and the people of Israel rescued the city. The Bible says they slaughtered the Ammonites. And there were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. That's right. Every Ammonite soldier who survived was running for his life by himself, probably thinking some version of, I'm the only one. Now, some people before Saul was made king had said, oh, who's Saul? What's he going to do to help us? He's nothing, right? Forget him. So after the great victory... Some people went to Samuel and they said, hey, bring out those haters who were talking about Saul like that before. We're going to kill him. They should never have talked about the king that way. Everybody get a rock. Let's take care of this. But Saul said, no one will be executed this day, for today the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. That's a good start for a first king. But, you know, it didn't go well after that. The Philistines were a huge problem. If you're a history nerd like me, this, this next little bit is for us. The Philistines, who were rivals of the Israelites for a long time, show up in the Bible a lot during those parts of the history. Apparently, they came over from southern Europe or Greece. They went across Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, went down to Egypt, tried to invade Egypt, and they got kind of knocked out of there. They ended up on the eastern Mediterranean coast. I'm trying to do this. This geography is nonsense, what I'm doing with my hands. But anyway, <laughs> they end up on the eastern Mediterranean coast right next to where the Israelites are. Is it like that? Is that right? Anyway, here's the extra nerdy part. This migration happened during the shift from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And the Philistines came in with iron weapon technology that the Israelites didn't have yet. 
Did the Philistines share their tech? Oh, no, they did not. Now, you can imagine the middle of a battle. Hey, great sword. What is that, netherite? Is that enchanted? And the Philistine says, it's iron. It's enchanted by my people's superior skill. And then they go back to fighting, right? And the Philistine sword a lot of times would break the Israelite bronze sword or farm tool, as we'll see. Because the, the Philistines also didn't allow the, the Israelites to have blacksmiths. They'd be able to make weapons. So no, you can't do that. And so in Jonathan's times, the Israelites had to go to the Philistines just to get their farm tools sharpened. So it was iron weapons against pitchforks and cattle prods and stuff like that. Without God fighting for them, the Israelites would be in big trouble. Would God fight for the Israelites? Or to ask a related question, would Saul lead the Israelites in God's ways? Saul gathered some troops, his son Jonathan gathered some troops, and then when they got into it with the nearby Philistines, then all the Israelite army was called out, and then a massive amount of Philistine reinforcements showed up, and then the Israelites started to think, maybe this isn't going to end well. And this is where our story picks up. So the Bible says that when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, the people, quote, hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks. How do you do that? I don't know. And in tombs and in cisterns. And some went across the river to get even farther away. And Saul was at this place called Gilgal, and Samuel had told him to wait there. Wait in Gilgal, wait seven days, I'm going to come, I'm going to offer sacrifice to the Lord, seek the Lord's favor. You wait there, you lead the soldiers, I'll do the sacrifice, and then we'll go from there. So he's waiting for Samuel to come, and Saul's there, and all the people, quote, followed him trembling. So everybody's like shaking, like, what are we going to do? This pitchfork I have is nothing, right? He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come. And the people were scattering away from Saul. Now Saul had a really tough choice. The enemy has way more people. The enemy has way better technology. The enemy has real weapons because they control the iron making. And Saul's soldiers are running off or hiding. Not only is it lonely at the top for King Saul, but if the people keep leaving, he might literally be the only one. So what did he do? He offered the sacrifice to God that Samuel was supposed to offer. He stepped out of his role and tried to take matters into his own hands. It was as if he said, I'm the only one who can solve this problem. I'm going to do what I think is best. And then, right then, Samuel showed up. If Saul had trusted God just a little bit longer, waited a little bit longer, it could have been so different. Samuel, who had watched disobedience destroy Eli's family and cause his own sons to lose the people's respect, called out Saul on his disobedience. The fact is, trying to take on Samuel's role went against what God had specifically told Saul to do. And this is Saul's response. 1 Samuel chapter 13, let's look at this. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. When Saul felt like he was alone and abandoned, he took matters into his own hands in direct disobedience to God. He was impatient, hasty, and he tried to force God to go along with his plan 
instead of trusting in God's plan. He tried to force God to go along with his plan instead of trusting in God's plan. How often do we do that? The story continues with Samuel telling Saul, you've acted foolishly. You haven't kept the command God gave you. If you had, God would have established your kingdom forever. Saul was so concerned with what he thought was going to happen to him that he ignored what God had told him to do. And sadly, he got exactly the results that he was trying to avoid. He eventually lost his kingdom and was killed by the Philistines. This was the beginning of the end for Saul. He failed another huge test of obedience later, and then he struggled with paranoia, spiritual oppression for years and years. He started out pretty well, but he ended very badly. So, when you want advice on how to handle the pressures of enemy thoughts, better not call Saul. (laughs) Now, Saul's son, Jonathan, what about him? He was in the middle of this big crisis too, but his perspective was very different. Big contrast between father and son. Jonathan knew that the Philistines had huge advantages. He knew that the Israelites were terrified and they were abandoning him and his father. To make things even worse, again, no one but Saul and Jonathan even had swords. Israelites only had farm tools, which they had to get from the Philistines in the first place. But in the middle of this big, big trouble, look at how Jonathan responds. 1 Samuel 14, 6. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. There are a lot of times in life when we're outnumbered and have very limited resources. Have you ever felt that way? Me too. Saul felt it and disobeyed God. Jonathan felt it, but chose faith. He basically decided that attacking the Philistines was worth the risk because God can save us however he wants. God is the number one factor in the success or the failure of anything we try to do. So Jonathan and his wingman, they've left the rest of the soldiers, and they've gone over to this pass between these two cliffs. There's a cliff here, there's a cliff here, there's this pass down below. Right? And Jonathan says, let's cross over. Maybe God will help us. The armor bearer says, I'm with you. Jonathan says, hey, when they see us, if they say, wait there until we come to you, we'll wait. But if they say, come up, we'll take that as a sign that God has given them into our hands. And so they climb down the cliff. Have you ever climbed down a cliff recently? Personally, I try not to do that right before I'm going into hand-to-hand combat. But they climb down, and the Philistines see them and say, hey, The Israelites are crawling back out of their holes. Come on up. we got something to show you. So Jonathan and his buddy climb all the way up the cliff. That's definitely not recommended right before you're going to fight for your life. And then they go up and they strike down the Philistines who are waiting for them. God gave them such a complete victory, just the two of them, that the Philistines were thrown into a terror. Not just at the outposts where Jonathan attacked, but the whole area. And the troops start running off in all directions, and later they start attacking each other. The Bible describes it as a terror from God. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, the rest of this story is fascinating. Check it out this week. Jonathan's courage and faith, 
rally the rest of the Israelite troops, and they had a great victory over the Philistines in spite of the Israelites' obvious disadvantages. Jonathan's response to feeling like he was the only one was to trust God. That's hard. That's hard to do. But often, one person choosing to trust God and do what's right can bring a lot of other people along. My hope is that each one of us will experience that, that we'll choose to trust God even when we feel alone, and then we'll see how our obedience, how God uses that to bless the people around us. This is what Jesus did. He faced loneliness. He was abandoned. He predicted it, actually, and then he suffered through it. But he also demonstrated the right perspective for us. And look at his response in John 16. The the disciples, his friends, his students say, oh, yeah, okay, finally we get it. We believe you. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus knew God was with him, and so even when his friends abandoned him, he wasn't alone. But then, when he was being crucified for us, he felt abandoned even by God. My God, my God, he said, why have you forsaken me? So he really felt it. Jesus knows how we feel. Jesus knows what it's like to be the only one. But even then, he shows us the way forward. Just before he died, he prayed to God and he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted God even when his suffering and his isolation were as bad as they could possibly be. So, here we are, each of us going through the ups and downs of 2022, How do we trust God in the middle of our suffering and isolation? God wants to lead us to victory. How do we play our part? Well, God leads us to victory, first of all, as we remember that God's with us. It it sounds really simple, right? But do we live that way? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are not alone because your Father is with you. And as we said earlier, God is the number one factor in your success. That perspective needs to be like a featured decoration of our hearts. Figure out a way to get it in your heart and put it on display so you can be reminded of it day after day. Don't leave it like dusty and forgotten in some you know, true but not real, true but not relevant closet. Don't do that. Now, if you're still figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus, I encourage you to ask him to show you what to do next in order to relate to him. He wants you to seek him and find him, and he is not far off. God also leads us to victory as we remember that others have also suffered. For me, for probably for you, it's tempting to think that other people have it all together. They have it easier, or they're doing better, something. We don't see what's really going on a lot of the time, and we also don't see a lot of the hard things that people face. But the fact is, we are all going through an awful lot in this broken world. And God wants to use it to unite us, centered on his son Jesus. The enemy is aiming to isolate and destroy us, so again, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Your troubles are not as unique as you may think. They're real. 
but others face them too. And they're people who can comfort you with the comfort that God has given them in similar situations. But God also leads us to victory as we connect to him through reading the Bible and through prayer. Again, the number one factor in our success is God. Are you running on your own power? That's the way of Saul. This is not the way. God's word and direct conversation with him through prayer connect us to God's power and love. They remind us that he's with us and that he's for us. And finally, God leads us to victory as we connect regularly with people here at church. Really? Is that part of victory in life, to be in a community of like-minded people? Let me ask you a question. Who's your reference group? Who are the people that you want to be like? Maybe it's certain friends or family or coworkers. Maybe it's TV characters or celebrities. When you think about that person or those people, are they living the kind of life that you actually want? Here's the deal. If you feel like you're the only one, chances are you won't stay that way. You'll change in order to not feel left out. Who will you change to be like? What will that lead to? Remember, the enemy wants to remove you from the battle. God calls us to community. He tells us to not give up meeting together. Some people do that. He says, don't do that. He helps us to comfort and encourage and strengthen one another. But we can't do that if we're isolated. We can't do that if we choose other reference groups that pull us away from God's ways. So Ridgeview, everybody listening, let's build community together. Now, like last week, I want to leave us with two verses that I hope will build us up this morning. In fact, one is the same as last week. Take a moment, whatever's going on in your life, and let's look at Romans 8, 28 together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we know that when you feel so terribly isolated, if you love God and you've been called according to his purpose, he will work it for good. But then look at this next verse, Romans 8, 38. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're in this together, and God is for us. As we push past isolation, trusting him, and we draw together in community, he will be with us. He will be faithful to give us what we need to move forward with him. What could it look like for us to be a church that shows God's goodness to the people around us, even in hard times? Let's press on together. I'd like to invite the band to come on up. We're going to Receive our offering in a minute. You can finish filling out your connection card if you haven't finished yet. This is the part where we all kind of get distracted, but this is also the part where 
We talk about next steps. The Bible is meant to be lived out in real life. Take a practical next step. You can do it. See how God changes your life as you take next steps obeying him. First of all, you can memorize Romans 8.38. We just looked at it. That would be a weapon that you could store up in your heart to defend you against the attacks of the enemy. You could join a meetup. Pastor Alex was talking about them earlier. There's one this Friday. There's more. You've got information there. That is a really simple way to draw into community. I'm an introvert. I'm not very good at that. I kind of prefer to like not take that risk. But I encourage you to take it. That could be another next step today. You could also invite someone to lunch after church. Right? Again, Pastor Alex was talking about this. Sunday, it's Sunday for an hour or a little bit like that. That's not very much time to really build relationships. What would happen if you said, hey, you know, you want to get lunch after this? Or are you free this week or next week for lunch? It'd be fun to talk more. That could be a next step for you today. And then you could pray about joining a group this fall. A lot of you guys have been in groups before. I am so excited for groups this fall. They're going to launch in a few months. It's a commitment, right? But you could pray about it as a next step. And I really encourage you to join us when we launch them up. That is a key way that we build community together as a church and build one another up as we move forward with God. So those are some next steps. You may have had your own. I encourage you to take that step, obey God today. Let's pray together, and then we'll turn it back over to the band. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day of life. Thank you for being with us. I forget that so much. I'm sure other people do, but you are faithful. Your love endures forever. Help us to remember that more. Help us to play our part to trust you and obey you, to pursue you, and to show your love to the world around us, even when things are hard, even when we we feel isolated and cut off. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.